Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, as you noticed probably, I was down at Central Campus earlier this morning, so I've had one run-through on this sermon. I got it down to an hour and a half. I'm hoping to improve it a little bit better uh, the, with you guys, but if not, hope you brought snacks because you're going to be here a while. No, I'm just teasing you. I just want to let the kids go to uh, Children's Church, Kidmen, and uh, we'll go on from there. If you can't tell, that's my little grandson leaving out there today, <laughs> little Edmund, uh, and my oldest daughter, Rachel. So if you get a chance to say hi to them, you can do that a little bit later. It's good to have you here this morning. It's a good crowd down at Central. COVID is actually over. People are coming back out. As Will mentioned, Fellowship of the Saints is a precious thing. And uh, there's nothing better than to be together as we open the Word of God together. Uh, we've been in the series of the resurrection. We've been doing that since Easter. Uh, this morning, we're doing the resurrection and eternity, which is a great thing. Uh, because Jesus Christ is risen and is no longer in his tomb, we are, as his adopted children, enjoying the fruit of the resurrection, uh, for which one is eternal life in the presence of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. But what does that exactly mean? How are we to look forward to this eternal life? Well, that's where we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Uh, just a word of uh, kind of background for this. Uh, the book of Revelation has been shrouded in mystery for a millennium. People don't really know what to do with it, and therefore a lot of people just avoid it. Um, if you are old enough to remember the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of evangelical preachers that traveled the country speaking about prophecy, putting up the proverbial uh, bedsheet of things that were going to happen. And what they got hung up on, in my opinion, is that they were trying to figure out the when question. When will these things happen? When will Jesus return? When will I get to experience all the things that are described here in chapter 21. Well, we're going to skip right over that today, and we're going to look at the what. What exactly is it that we are supposed to understand about eternal life? And we're going to recognize that the Apostle John, who wrote this book, is borrowing a lot of his uh, illustrations, uh, of his descriptions, from what has already been written in the Old Testament. And further, that he also understood that his readers were quite versed not only in the Old Testament, but in books that were written that didn't quite make the grade into the canon, and which are now in a collection called the Apocrypha. So as we look at all of these passages, we're going to have some support of our interpretation by just examining them in the light of these previous verses, even from those that are in the New Testament. Uh, then also we want to try to understand this in the history in which John wrote it. What is his point in bringing out what he brings out? What is God telling him? So in just this small couple of paragraphs, we're going to get a grasp of what is going to be happening for all eternity. So I'm going to read chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, our passage for this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, mourning, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy. They are true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them from the springs of the waters of life without payment. The one who are conquerors will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a passage this morning which we may find in some ways to be difficult to read and to digest, but we ask, Lord, that as we open the word together, that your Holy Spirit will give us a profound understanding of not only what these words mean, but why John wrote them. I pray, Lord, that as we examine the Old Testament and look at verses that are in support of this, this will become clear to us and that we will be greatly encouraged as your people. Father, in case there are those that are here this morning or listening that do not know you as their Savior, we pray that these words will be some motivation for us to come to make certain that we have eternal life in your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this time together. What a privilege to be in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do this morning as we look at these couple of paragraphs is we're going to look at three points. The first being the promise of recreation. The second one being the promise of renewal. And lastly, thirdly, the promise of redemption. First of all, let's look at the promise of recreation. I have to be careful here because if I don't put that hyphen before creation, we have the promise of recreation which sounds wonderful, you know, who can't uh, love that being in recreation for the rest of eternity? In fact, the English word is closer to recreation, you know, when you go to rest and you do fun things, you kind of recreate yourself, you're, you're getting a new lease on your life. But what John is saying here is a little bit different. He's saying there was a new heaven and a new earth, Right? The first earth and heaven have passed away. And it's interesting, he has a choice of several words that he could use in the original language, but he chooses to use a word that doesn't mean the newness of time. It's not a new earth and a new heaven because it's happening at the end times. It really refers to something of a qualitative understanding of new. All right? This is not a destruction of all that has happened. It is a transformation. It's a qualitative transformation of the old creation rather than a brand new creation from nothing, ex nihilo. We see this in Paul's writing in Romans, right? In chapter 8, when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to what? To futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul is basically saying that from the time of sin in the fall in Genesis chapter 3 until the end of days, creation has been in pain. It has been in pain because of sin. That which God created and said, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, because of sin, has been groaning. And how has it been groaning? He says, in the pains of childbirth. He's saying it's just like a woman who is giving birth and experiencing labor. So creation has not been the same since those days. I don't know how long some of you ladies were in labor, those of you who have had children. Uh, for our first child, 27 hours. My poor wife had to go through labor, right? But nothing compared to the millennia that creation has been broken, has been suffering, has been waiting for the day when which that would go away. John is saying that day is coming, a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 66 verse 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. It's a promise that has been happening that we've been looking forward to, John is saying. We can't wait until that which we know has been transformed. How much of it's going to be transformed? What, if anything, will we recognize from the present creation? Who knows? But we know that in God's economy, in the way that he does things, it's going to be glorious what he is going to transform us into. And then he says a curious phrase, and the sea was no more. What's wrong with the sea? I like going to the ocean. It's fun. It can be beautiful. But for John and the other writers who, who dabbled into the apocalyptic writings, the, the writings about the end time, the sea was always a metaphor in their day and age for that which is dark and mysterious and somewhat frightening. So for him, I think right now, the sea that will be no more is evil. The sea was uh, the origin of evil, of cosmic evil. The sea was the unbelieving, rebellious nations. The sea was the place of the dead. It was the primary place of world's idolatry. Thus, when the new creation comes, there will no longer be any threat from Satan, or will he, have been, he will have been permanently judged and excluded from this new creation. The sea will be no more. There will be no threat from rebellious nations, for they're going to suffer the same fate as Satan. Neither will there be death again in the new world. There is no room in the new creation for this kind of existence. Even the perception of the sea as a literal body of water, that murky, dark place in which surface hides whatever is happening underneath, will not be there. John is indicating that literal seas separate nation from nation. They separated John from his beloved churches. But in the new creation, such separations cannot happen any longer. People are in close fellowship with one another and with God. And then he says there will be a new Jerusalem. He borrows this imagery from Isaiah chapter 52 when he says, Put on your beautiful garments. 
O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The people of Israel had been waiting for a long time for all the promises made to the nation of Israel and to the capital city of Jerusalem to come to fruition. I don't think they had any idea what exactly God was going to do, but John is letting us know that there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And then he jumps not only from telling us about a new Jerusalem, but describing it, a language that comes from other passages of Isaiah, like Isaiah 62, which describes Jerusalem sort of in a marital idea, like she is the bride that is being prepared for marriage to God. In uh, chapter 62, I'm going to read this because I think it is really instructive to what we're seeing here, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. You shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall be called, and notice this, in the, in the Hebrew, it literally is, my delight is in her. God's going to give Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, a new name. My delight is in her and your land will be called married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom, who in this case is God, rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God uses that imagery of marriage throughout the Old Testament for Israel, the New Testament. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for the church. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But when we get to John's writings here, we're not looking at a bride that had to strive for perfection, that had to be ready with the oil when the bridegroom comes. We, that, that's not the, the point. The point is here, it is the wedding day. This new Jerusalem, the presence of God with his people, is indicating that for all of history, we've been waiting for this marriage ceremony. Like a young man waiting to see his bride walk up the aisle, so God has waited for his people to come to him in their purity. And I love the language that is used here. He is going to make resplendent clothing for his people. They are going to be ready for this event. There's going to be a great feast, we're told elsewhere. Uh, between the Lamb and His church. We are getting ready for a purpose, a bride's purpose. There will be no divorce. There will be no separation. It will be a perfect union. What else are we told here? That God will be with His people. Verse 3, God will be with His people. John is using terminology here that would remind his readers of the covenant promises that God had made to his people since the Old Testament, Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Zechariah chapter 2, I love this section. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, 
For behold, I come and I will dwell in the midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. God's going to come live with his people. We're not going to have any kind of separation between us and him. He says that in the next section too. New Jerusalem is a temple city. What does a temple city mean? <coughs> Excuse me. It means that it is a sacred place. The temple always referred to that nexus between heaven and earth. The temple was a place where God came and put his locality for the sake of his people to have access to him. But who could have access to God? Not everybody. Just a few, a few select ones, most notably the priest. And by the time of the end of the closing of the Old Testament, it was a few Zedekite priests, right? And they could only have access once time a year into the very presence of God. But John is saying, no, in the future, we're all going to be in the presence of God. What a promise. We don't need anything to mediate between us and the presence of God. Since the time of the crucifixion, when the, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, we've had a lack of separation from God. We are the temple of God, according to the New Testament. But in John's writings, there will be no need for the physical building. We will not necessarily have to be that temple because God himself will reside with us. There's not like there's a, a presence of God outside of us or a lack of presence of God outside of us. He will be everywhere, John is trying to say. And I love his emphasis using the plural pronoun there, they. Many nations, uh, Isaiah 19, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, uh, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. He's showing ownership of even nations that are outside of Israel. And as I read in Zechariah chapter 2, when he says that many nations will be coming to him. God's tabernacling presence as revealed throughout the Old Testament, through the temple of the Christian in the New Testament, now finds its ultimate fulfillment in this new Jerusalem, in this new presence of God. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what eternal life is all about. It's our presence with the Lord. The temple that used to be, whether you're talking Solomon's or Herod's, was a nationalistic institution. And it spoke loud and clear. It might as well have been flashing lights on it saying, Gentiles, keep away. People of the world, this isn't for you. But God is now saying that's not going to happen. Because of Jesus Christ, all who come to him in faith will have access and a place in the presence of God. I will be their God. They will be my son. I love it. Because Jesus, the ideal king and Israelite, is the considered part of true Israel, and he's decided that I want everyone that knows me to share in my inheritance. That's how that happens. So there's going to be a recreation. The second point is, as I said, there's a promise of renewal in verses 4 and 5. Let me read those real quick for us again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow. 
John is obviously borrowing from Isaiah 25, where it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God shall wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's that stamp of authority. God has said, your creator has said, this is the way it will be. In the final state, death shall no longer be present, nor all the mourning that comes with that. There will not be any pain. I don't know about you guys, but I worry a lot. I spend a lot of my day praying for my, my family. You, many of you do that too, I know. You just get up in the morning and you just, you're praying. I've got daughters going to teach school in Lone Tree. I've got you know, daughters who are living in Houston and dealing with that traffic mess. And I, I sometimes wonder, how long do I have to pray for them, Lord? How long do I have to use up an hour of my day just interceding for them? Uh, yesterday, we were visiting at one daughter's house and my my young grandson, I see God, he afflicts me with three boys now, and I know there's not going to be any peace as long as they're around, but anyway, I keep praying for them, and I watch this little guy, you know, just a little bit over a year old, climb up on a wood deck, and I'm saying like, Edmund, be careful, and he walks to the edge of the deck, and it's about a foot, maybe a foot and a half drop, and his little chubby legs can't make that step. And I know it. I'm about 20 feet away from him. And I'm saying, Edmund, don't do that. And he just, with a big smile on his face, goes <laughs> right on his back. All four limbs straight in the air. And I'm waiting for the howl. You know, I can still remember the days when you just measured how severe of an injury by how long a silence gap there was before you heard that piercing scream. But not with Edmund. He just got up. He kind of looked like he was a little dazed. And he wiped himself off. And he turned to get right back up on that wood deck again. And it's just not going to end. It isn't. But when we get to eternity, all that's gone. We don't worry about pain. We don't worry about death. We have nothing to worry about. God sees to everything. What a freedom we will share. Some of you are sat by bedsides of people who are slowly heading to death. You know that they're suffering pain. They're suffering the indignity of what happens to you sometimes in a hospital, you're, you're just so concerned for them. It, it, it colors your whole day, your whole night. You get up in the middle of the night because you're so burdened in prayer for this person. And God says that all is changing. Everyone, everyone will experience the freedom from such emotions, from such realities. John continues here to say that the Bliss of eternity is the fulfillment of prophecy. God says, it is true because I said this. And we know that because in that next section, he says, write this down, right? In verse 5, write this down. Seems like a weird thing for him to be saying to John. But he wants these words, these images to be captured forever. And then he says, why should he write these down? Because they are trustworthy and true. The same thing he says in chapter 22, verse 6, almost verbatim. Write these down because these things are trustworthy and true. Now, those kind of words can only be backed up by the person speaking them. If I were to say to you, I know this is true because I feel it, or I say it, you'd still be sitting there going, well, Foster gets things wrong all the time. I'm not sure about this. But when God says it's trustworthy, when God says it's true, he intends for us to bank on it. These things will be true. Wow. 
we know this in Revelation chapter 3, that Christ is called the Amen, the faithful, the true witness. And what I love about that is in the Hebrew, the word for true, of course, is Amen, Amen, right? That is what he's saying, the Amen, the faithful. Christ is that. Everything that Jesus said that he was going to do, he did, right? All the way from March to Jerusalem to miracles to healings, the death on the cross. He predicted all those things. The rising from the dead, even though the disciples missed it, it all was true according to his own words. And basically John is saying, if you can believe that part, you better believe this part. This is what our eternal life will be like. What a great promise. Thirdly, we have the promise of redemption in verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. It is done. It, it, it reminds us of Jesus on the cross in John chapter 19, when he says, it is finished. The salvation history that had been promised from the time of the fall in Genesis 3, through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Davidic covenant, through the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, it was finished on that cross. When Jesus took the penalty for sins for all of us upon himself and said, no more has to be done to atone for sin. He doesn't quite say that explicitly, but that's what it is finished means. And God is saying much the same here. He's saying, it is done, right? No more. The history has run complete. We don't have to look forward to anything else. Bad happening, great happening, it is all wonderful. It is done. God's purpose in history is complete. And then he just adds an emphatic statement. Just in case that you were in doubt, John writes, that God is what? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. This is figure of speech, a merism, right? A merism is a figurative point to mention the opposite poles of something in order to emphasize the totality of everything that comes between them. In the Hebrew, he could have said, I am the Aleph and the Tau. It's just a way of saying from the very beginning to the very end, I have been sovereign. Now, we live our lives. Some of us have very long lives. We can live to 100. Some of us live very short lives. We're, we're, we're celebrating Memorial Day where many young men gave their lives. They never got to see much past the age of 19, 20. God says, I was sovereign in all of that. Uh, we know people who have had almost unspeakable evil happen to them. God says, I understand. I was there. I understand that. Nothing happened between these two poles, alpha, omega, beginning, and end, that I wasn't sovereign over. There were no mistakes. There was no gap. I hadn't gone to take a break, and things happened while I was out of the room. God says, I was there. I saw it to its completion. We look at the book of Job, and we wonder, you know, what if we were in Job's shoes, would we have done the same thing? If you remember after God had taken out his children, right? He had allowed Job to be afflicted with illness. 
He had removed his wealth. Job kept saying things like, boy, if I could just get God on the carpet in front of me for five minutes, I'd give him such an earful. Then he would know that he had been unjust in letting these things happen. I feel that way sometimes. I feel that's not fair. It's not right. It's not what God should have wanted to have happened. And we try to figure that all out. How does that work with what we know about the Lord and the Savior and all this kind of stuff? Even as Christians, we experience pain and trauma. And God is saying to us, don't worry. Just know that I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And that everything that happened, happened for a reason, happened for a purpose. I was there. There's nothing that happened outside of my scope of strength and power. He is in the beginning and he is in the end. The point of these titles is that God transcends time. He guides the entire course of history because he stands as sovereign over its beginning and end. So he will bring things to conclusion. And then he says that we can have the water of life without payment. Again, John is borrowing from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Uh, Isaiah gives us an idea that God has some future blessing for us that we will receive that will cost us nothing. And the idea here is that you can imagine what it was like, the waters of life, to people who lived in the desert, people who lived in a semi-arid climate. To have water anytime you want it, I don't have to go to a well. You remember the famous battles over water wells in the Old Testament. Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, saying, I will give you water from which if you drink it, you will never thirst again. Uh, in eternity, God says, you will have waters of life. That is a metaphor for salvation. You will have waters of life. This fellowship is reserved for those who have maintained their faith in the Lamb's atoning death. John is saying, if you stick it out, if you live for Christ all of your life, when you get into his presence, you will have the waters of life. And, and the word here for waters of life is actually a, a, an image of fountains bursting from the deep. It's an overabundance of water, almost like a swimming pool, if you will. They didn't have swimming pools back then, but it's kind of got that idea to it. It is more water than you could possibly want. And yet, God says it's yours. And why? You don't have to pay for it. Matter of fact, you can't pay for it. If this is referencing salvation, then Jesus paid the price for it. His grace, his mercy brings it to us free of charge. Basically, in these descriptions, as John writes this section, he's saying, here's an invitation to everyone that's weary of the trauma of life. I give you this. Uh, the, the Christians in John's day were persecuted. They were battered. They were bruised. You go back to Hebrews chapter 12, and you read the description of what happened to people. You read church history, and you can see how often Christians were forced to do things they didn't want to do, and they were forced to suffer and so forth. And John is saying, hang in there, fellow believer. Hang in there. We know from church history that John himself had been persecuted. Uh, we're told that he had been put into burning oil. 
It's not a real common practice by the Romans, but it happened. And that it didn't harm him. Just like Daniel and his friends in the, in the furnace. He made it out of that. So the Romans did the best they could, and they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he had this vision. And John is just saying, listen, I understand. It's rough. Hang in there. Don't give up. And when you get to God's presence, these things are going to be true, including you're going to have the waters of life. But you have to be overcomers. It says that you will be the conquerors. You know, the one who conquers will have this heritage, right? The one who conquers will have this heritage. This language is inheritance language. And what we're seeing here between the first paragraph and the second paragraph is almost a comparison, right? The comparison that happens for those who inherit grace and salvation versus what we're going to see is the inheritance of those who don't overcome. But John at this point is saying, overcomers, just keep on going. Don't give up. Let nothing get in the way of the goals that God has for you. They ironically conquer, uh, Christians do, when they maintain their faith, even though the world may see them as being defeated because of persecution. The world sees that people suffer or are put to death, and they think the problem's over. It shows those dirty atheists, and that's how they used to characterize Christians, because we wouldn't worship the emperor, those dirty atheists, just exactly what we think of them. John is saying, no, you're the conquerors. You who suffer for Christ, you are the conquerors. You're the ones who've made it through. He says, so what do you have to do, true Christians, to persevere, to become conquerors? Well, you can't compromise with the world. You just can't. That's not what we're about. You can't depend on your own strength. You'll never make it. You can't fall to persecution's temptation and deny Christ. Persecution is the test in the book of Revelation. That's always what John has in mind as he writes to his young churches. Please stand firm for Christ. Now, we're not suffering persecution, are we? Right now, it's not illegal to be a believer in Christ. And yes, I know there are storm clouds on the horizon. Things are happening that could make our price for salvation to be very costly if we tend to live for Christ. But John's admonition to us is be conquerors, stand strong, be an example to others. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that suffer on a regular basis for their faith. What do we gain if we do so? Well, if we take the totality of the book of Revelation, John mentions a lot of things. What if you overcome? What if we make it? What does it say that we will inherit? Well, it says in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the tree of life, which is the paradise of God, Uh, the inclusion in this new reality of the non-temple, participation in New Jerusalem, the name of God on one's person, one's name written in the book of life. We get bright garments. We get a bright stone and a luminary, some kind of light, right? We reign with Christ and we're excluded from the second death, perhaps the most important thing. We will get to have all of these things for all eternity. Since saints are in Christ, they will inherit fully what Jesus wants us to inherit. And he chose, even though he's God's unique son, to give everything that he has to us. He wants us to be co-rulers, co-reigners with him in these end times. Then there will be disobedience for the damned. This 
this section has been so glorious and so encouraging is going to end with a warning in verse 8. But as for the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Why would John add that onto this great description of eternal life? Because as I said, John is trying to encourage the believers to stay true to the word. Um, this new city of Jerusalem has been brought in as our inheritance, but there's walls around it. If you were to read the rest of this chapter, you would notice there are walls around the city. There are certain people that will not be allowed access to this experience. What's outside of the walls? Well, in John's day, there were certain people that could trade within the city, but then there were people that were kept permanently out of the city from dwelling there. Foreigners, traders, prostitutes, so forth. But what's outside of this eternal city? It's hell. It's hell. And how is hell described? Why, it's a lake of fire, right? It's a lake of fire and brimstone. What does John mean by this? Well, some people believe that that's an ironic statement, lake being water, fire being the antithesis of water. How can they exist as one? But I think John is struggling so much to get the right terminology for what vision he is seeing. This is going to be horrible. Remember earlier in verse 1, and the sea will be no more. So the only body of water that he is characterizing here is this lake of fire. And I think that he is he's looking for terms that would convey to us, you don't want anyone to go there. You don't want to go there. You don't want anyone that you love to go there. You don't want anyone to go there. It's a second death. There will be no coming back from it. You will be in that situation for all eternity. And then he gives a brief description of those who would inherit it. And again, don't just take these words at face value. Understand them in the context of what he is dealing with in his day, which is persecution. So he says, the ones that who will not be there, whose names will not be written in the Lamb's book of life, are the cowardly, right? Those who fear persecution, the unbelieving, those who are faithless in the midst of testing. Those are detestable. They're vile. That probably means they're sexually immoral and they practice idolatry. They're murderers. They betrayed Christians to the government, perhaps, or at least they didn't meet a fellow Christian's need. And John will write about that in one of his letters that's in the canon, 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, right, but yet chooses, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? They're sexually immoral. Probably there's a spiritual connotation to that. They visit temple prostitutes. What a contrast that experience would be with the wedding of the Lamb, when the bride in its purity is brought forth resplendent in its gowns. And then you have those who would instead sacrifice all of that for the fleeting pleasures of prostitution, for sorcerers, the magic arts, those who practice the deceptive tools of demons. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, John has already written, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. 
John says you can't have it both ways. There's only one God. Idolaters, and finally, liars, false prophets, those who falsely claim to follow truth. John wrote in 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, that is Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, you're a liar, and the truth is not in him. John is saying all these things, people have a backbone, be encouraged, no matter how short or long your life is. If you're a believer, walk faithfully with Christ, do what he did, pick up your cross daily and follow him, just like we have a picture of all the disciples doing that. No matter where God called them and placed them, they did not look for the comforts of life, even in old age. They looked to accomplish the will of the one that sent them. Now, as this section closes, I think there's two things that we need to keep in mind here. Two ways that he contrasts here. I want you to think for a second just about what's the greatest present you ever received. I'm not just talking about a typical Christmas, birthday-type gift. I'm talking about a life-changing gift. Something that you just can't believe that person gave to me. It meant so much. What was your response? How did you feel in your heart when you got that gift? Full of gratitude? Thinking maybe, perhaps, what can I do in return to show that person how much I appreciate them? I can't possibly repay what they did, but at least I can make the effort. I think that's what John is trying to say in this first section to his believers in that first century. Jesus gave you a tremendous gift. Look at all the things that you're going to receive. How can you possibly repay those? You can't. It's waters, uh, living waters that are free without payment. No mourning, no crying, no pain. So the least you can do is be faithful. The least we can do as believers is to say thank you to God and choose to live our life different than everyone else around us. To ask God, what can I do, Father, to please you? How can I live my life in such a way that no matter what the cost is, you are honored by it? The second thing I'd like us to think about is this description of those who aren't going to make it. Their eternal destiny. It is horrific to read. It is hard to grasp. We wonder, why would a loving God let people go into this lake of fire and brimstone? Why would he determined that they would be eternally separated, the second death, from him. And all I can say is we can't be probably getting an answer to that in this lifetime, but what we can do is look around us to the people that we love and care for that don't know Jesus as their Savior. And we have to carry the gospel to them. We have to live our life in such a way that we have the right to speak the words that Jesus gave to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I had a friend that uh, I really cared for. And back in my school days, I remember as a new Christian standing outside the doors of our high school early in the morning. And I had an opportunity to share with him what had happened to me, how I came a Christian. And I didn't know a lot of theology. I just knew that I was looking forward to Christ's return. And I I said to him many times, Mike, just remember that someday you're going to see all these people you know as Christians are gone. 
I believed that the rapture was going to happen and that God would take us off the picture. And I said, then you'll have a small window of time to do business with God, to give your heart to him. Now, I don't know what happened to that young man. Uh, we lost track of each other after we graduated. I, he may be a believer for all I know today. But what I do know is that he got very angry at me for saying those words. And he decided to make it his mission to tell everyone else that we mutually knew that I'd become a drug addict during the summer, that I was living in this horrible life, and that all these things about Christ just weren't true in my life. And when I came back to school in September, I had a, more than one person say to me, well, you don't look that much different. And I had to ask, what do you mean? And he said, well, we heard these things. That's hardly persecution. But it was an effort to speak the word of Christ. The other thing that I love is that people I did share my faith with at different points in my life, and they did not accept Christ with me. I have since seen and caught up with, and God has done a wonderful work in their life. We're not always there for the final picture. I think when we get to this new Jerusalem, we're going to be amazed at who is there and what is going to happen to those that eventually, because they heard the germ of the idea from us, find the, found their way to Christ. Others watered the seed that we plant. So who is it today that needs to hear that word from you? What family member, what friend, what enemy needs to hear the truth of eternal life? Where else can they hear it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is so powerful. Lord, it is the truth of your Old Testament, your New Testament, and what will be future, that we will dwell with you for all eternity. What a great thought. Father, I pray for those that are on our hearts that don't know you. Maybe we've shared with them and they've resisted. Maybe we haven't had the courage to share with them. Maybe we feel our testimony has been blown because of our behavior. But Father, you are a forgiving God. You are a generous God. And even as Peter denied you three times at his moment of testing, still you used him. Father, it's never too late to get our act together, to walk with you. And I pray, Lord, that we will be a stronger church and stronger individuals in Christ because of this time in the Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.